On February 11, 1990, Nelson Mandela walked out of Victor Versta prison in Cape Town after 27 years behind the bars of South African jails. 18 years on Robben Island, six years in Polsmoor, the last few in Victor Versta. Mandela's release was not any sudden, munificent whim on the part of South Africa's apartheid government. Years of secret discussion and furtive preparation preceded the moment, as the architects of the system which had locked Mandela up began to understand that apartheid was unravelling, and that reaching an accommodation with their most famous prisoner might be the likeliest means of a relatively peaceful transition to democracy. This is the second of three special episodes of The Foreign Desk, meeting the people who have had the conversations and made the decisions which have shifted history. Last week, we looked at September 11th, 2001, and how people respond to the surprise event which rocks the world on its axis. This week, it's more a case of people planning to make the inevitable as undisruptive as possible. How do you make conversation with someone your government has imprisoned for three decades? Could anybody but Nelson Mandela have fulfilled the role he did? And what was it like watching him take those final steps of his long walk to freedom? This is the Foreign Desk in the Room. Good evening, Garrick, and it is just that. South Africa's President F.W. de Klerk ended the suspense at 5 o'clock this afternoon, South Africa time. Nelson Mandela to be released tomorrow, and as you might expect... That is a moment that this country will not soon forget. I wish to put it plainly that the government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. I'm serious. I'm serious about bringing this matter to finality without delay. And a salute from Mr. Nelson Mandela, his wife Winnie, greeting the people outside the fences of the Victor Verstaat prison. That is the man who the world has been waiting to see. Your tireless and heroic sacrifices have made it possible for me to be here today. I therefore place the remaining years of my life in your hands. You're listening to The Foreign Desk In The Room. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, joining me first from Cape Town is Dr. Neil Barnard, who formerly served as head of the South African Intelligence Service during the 1980s under P.W. Borta. Dr. Barnard played a crucial role in arranging secret talks with Nelson Mandela on behalf of the government, which he recounts in his book, Secret Revolution, Memoirs of a Spy Boss. Dr. Barnard, first of all, you were as surprised as anybody at the time that then Prime Minister P.W. Borta appointed a 30-year-old academic to be head of the NIS in 1979-80. What did you understand was his reason for doing that? Let me start off by informing everyone that in any country, as in ours in 1979-1980, the struggle for power on intelligence or information has been a feature of world politics anywhere. Against that background, uh, bear in mind that in the 60s, there was a a very deep distrust between P.W. Botha on the one hand, who was a very strong supporter of our military capacity, and uh, Hendrik van der Berg, who was the head of 
an old policeman, the head of the old Bureau for State Security, so-called boss. And the differences was on who would inform the then Prime Minister, John Foster, on what exactly was going on. But it was even deeper than that. It was, what does the future of our country, South Africa, looks like? Is it a way in which we will have to do what Americans presently call regime change? Or, as the old Bureau argued, and when I was the head of the NIS, we successfully put that message across. The real challenge of South Africa was our internal challenges, our internal problems. So clearly, PW understood that he could not change the system without bringing some new blood into the old bureau, analyzing intelligence and what was going on. And uh, perhaps on the advice of some of his old friends, namely Alwin Schleerbusch, who was then the leader of the Free State National Party, decided to appoint this young man from the Free State to this role. That's basically the background. Was your understanding of South Africa's situation at that point ahead, do you think, of President Berta's? Did he understand that apartheid was fundamentally doomed? <laughs> yeah, I've seen that question. It's a rather strong word you're using, but be that as my yes. Intellectually speaking, he understood very clearly that apartheid would not and never in the end be a permanent solution for South Africa's political problems. So yes, he did understand that, but I think the NIS and myself was intellectually very much inclined to find a what one would call a peaceful settlement. And if you don't mind, I hope some people in America and Europe your country, England as well, can understand that fighting in the Ukraine is not in the end the end answer. Maybe there are some intellectuals in your country who think the same presently. But yes, PW understood that apartheid could not last and that we will have to find a negotiated settlement. After all, that's the reason why we started the secret negotiations with Mandela in prison. Your first meeting with Nelson Mandela, May 1988, by which time he has been in prison for quarter of a century or more, he must have seemed this almost a, a figure from myth by this point. Was he different in person from what you'd expected? Let me say Nelson Mandela, without a shadow of doubt, was one of the colossal persons of the previous century. In any regard, he was a... Uh, a very impressive man. I find him intellectually very sharp, but perhaps the most lingering thought about Mandela is always that he, he was exercising the power, also the international power, the admiration which he had in such a way that any other man could live with that. For me, the way in which people in power handles that power the way in which they make you feel comfortable. So, yes, he was uh, a very impressive man. He uh, will always be. And in many ways, he even surpassed my expectations. 
There's a, a moment in the book that, that really struck me where you write of understanding the inevitability that Nelson Mandela would become president of South Africa. Do you think he felt the same way? Did he understand that that was his destiny, perhaps whether he liked it or not? What Mandela knew was that in the end, the ANC would govern South Africa. I'm prepared to say that at that time, when we started, he was still very much thinking that Tambu should be the first president and not himself. So to answer your question and sum it up, I'm absolutely sure Nelson Mandela knew that one day he would become president, but he, he handled it in a very courteous way, I, I must say, in a very humble way. And maybe his humbleness with power is perhaps the most enduring legacy of Nelson Mandela, be that as it may. Were there points of disagreement between the two of you, especially early on, or, or was there a shared understanding of where this was going to lead? We all know that it was not easy for Mandela to start this crucial discussions with this, this youngster, aged only 30. In his culture, it's not necessarily the way that a young boy should be talking to an old wise man. But yes, there were obviously many points of difference between us, but the most crucial point. And I think this all true for all negotiations worldwide was on how should we tackle the so-called armed struggle. The one side, the ANC in our case, would never give up the armed struggle because in their view, it was the only way in which they could keep up the pressure. On the other side, PW expressed the view that we would never start negotiations with the ANC if they don't stop the so-called armed struggle. One of our greatest achievements was to convince our own side, military people, other people, politicians, that it's no use to insist on that. We will have to allow them a so-called armed struggle, armed pressure, because that was the only source of power which they saw. And then a very crucial point. The crucial point being that, in truth, Umkontu and the military wing and the military struggle of the ANC really was never the main pressure point to the process of peaceful negotiations. It's a fallacy. We started negotiations because we knew that was the right thing to do. And it would not create a wasteland in South Africa, but it would create the foundation to find a peaceful settlement and after that a peaceful country, which sadly now we are under a lot of pressure. In those conversations with Nelson Mandela, for all the pressure you were both under and for all the strangeness of the circumstances, a friendship clearly developed, as your book relates. How did that happen? What did you talk about together that wasn't the situation that you were brought together to discuss? I think I can say that at the end, and even long after becoming president, I uh, maintained a very good personal relationship with Mr. Nelson Mandela. The main point of that was that from the very start, I conducted my discussions with him as any head of intelligence worldwide should regard as his or her 
main priority. And that is, to put it in your English way, speaking truth to power. From the very beginning, I think he realized that I'm not trying to be, if you don't mind, a cunning politician. I'm trying to inform him about the facts, the facts about himself, the facts about Winnie, the facts about his own organization, the ANC, the problems we had, the Communist Party, and so forth and so on. But yes, they developed a very, very personal relationship between him and me. And in the end, we trusted each other to the extent that he himself, but certainly myself, there were certain agreements reached on a very personal level, which will go down to the grave both with him and me. But the main argument I would use for our deep understanding and even intimate relationship is that we were quite direct and open with each other. And in my view, that is perhaps the most important characteristic of intelligence, and that is to speak the truth and not what you think the truth is. And what do you recall of the first meeting between Nelson Mandela and President Berta? Like all old men, they started asking each other about each other's health and the one trying to convince the other that he's more healthy and so forth and so on. Yes, they they started off by uh, talking about how good you look, etc., etc. And I think the personal agreement between them it was very interesting to see, bear in mind that nobody on the South African side at that time knew about that meeting. It was a completely covert meeting in Cape Town. That is basically, in my view, the reason why we started and ended with a peaceful settlement. You can never pass the Rubicon in peaceful negotiations if you do it through the media. The moment the media comes on board, everyone plays for his own gallery. You have to settle some issues <clears throat> before the media starts making this one has been giving in and that one has been doing that. That is, in my view, an extremely crucial issue. The more interesting question is if PW was still in power during the negotiations, what would it have been? In my view, which will differ from many historians, possibly even better and more successful. But be that as it may. That was Dr. Neil Barnard, former head of the South African Intelligence Service. His book, Secret Revolution, Memoirs of a Spy Boss, is available now. You're listening to The Foreign Desk in the Room. Joining me now from Cape Town is Vili Esterheze, an Emeritus Professor of Philosophy and Business Ethics at the University of Stellenbosch. Vili was a vocal critic of apartheid who liaised between the government and the ANC in the lead-up to Nelson Mandela's release from prison. He recounts these secret talks in his book, Endgame, Secret Talks and the End of Apartheid. First of all, how did you first become involved in those talks with the ANC in exile? Yeah, what happened is that British company consolidated goldfields with assets here in South Africa in the mining industry, 
asked me to get involved. Now, of course, it was a kind of tricky business. And I think the fortunate thing was that we kicked off in Britain. It was a neutral environment. And then secondly, the ANC people, they were in any case in exile. So we couldn't start the discussions here. And we had a wonderful area or a, a place where we did the talks, Mel's Park. Then I need to mention also that the National Intelligence Agency of South Africa, which is, I think, was then one of the best in the world, they contacted me and I, I still believe that they listened into my phone calls to London, but I didn't mind. Uh, so they asked me whether I would be prepared to give them some feedback on these talks. And I think the first thing I did, which was quite important, is to inform Tabumbeki about my contacts. And that is where our trust and confidence building started. I remember Tabu, we stood under a tree in the park, not in the house, because there's always someone who's listening in. And then I remember Tabu looked at me very seriously and said, Billy, but I have contacts with the um, National Intelligence Agency. It's a very, very serious thing. I said, no, 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 no. It's not serious. It's important. You need to know. And I trust you. And we started our trust building and confidence building under a tree in Britain, which was a wonderful experience. What do you remember about how the tone evolved over those meetings in Mel's Park? When you have meetings between the ANC in exile and the Africana representatives, was there at least agreement on where these talks were going to lead? You know, I think the first thing we did was to talk about our personal sort of interests and also our involvement. And then... We started with the politics. And the most important thing at that stage was the realization between me and Becky that the only way out of the dilemma and the crisis was a negotiated settlement. And when we got that on the table, we really, you know, started to ask the, and answer also the serious question, who should participate? in negotiations. And when we agreed very quickly, the exiles should be included. And of course, then the next question was now, what about the exiles? Because they were banned. And so then the very, very tricky question was in the end, in my position then, was to advise the national intelligence people that, you know, whatever you do, the first thing you need to talk about is what about unbanning the ANC so that the ANC, which was the most important movement in exile, so that the ANC could visit? And I think uh, what helped us very much is that Tabu Mbeki's father was released from jail. And that incident, I think, created not just trust, but also the starting point of a very, very exciting exercise. Were there disagreements, though, about what the end point would be? Or did everybody understand that apartheid was ending and that there would be a one-person, one-vote democracy? 
there was complete clarity, complete clarity that it should be a voting system, one man, one vote. First of all, I must say that the National Intelligence Service of South Africa played a very prominent role. And I arranged the first meeting between Tabu and Jacob Zuma in Switzerland, in the hotel in Lucerne. And they came back, and I think what was in a certain sense, and I have to say this with a little bit of irony and so on, President P.W. Boota got a stroke and he was out of the equation. And F.W. Duclerc became the new nationalist party leader and also president. So he was a new man and he was quite willing to take risks, which of course an older person like P.W. Boota was not prepared to do. And then on the 12th of September, I arranged a meeting with Tabu Mbeki and the national intelligence people in um, Switzerland. And they then informed FW for the first time when FW became president. And I think it was either the 17th or the 18th of September, only a few days. He became angry and he said, but you didn't inform me what you're doing. But then I think FW did the most important thing in his life. He then said, okay, I'll take it from here. And then he got not just politically, but also personally involved, which I think was the breakthrough. You mentioned earlier that the conversations in Mel started with people talking about their personal stories, introducing themselves. Among the two groups between the ANC in exile and the Africana representatives, did genuine friendships forge? And, and was that an important part of the negotiation? It was quite interesting and fascinating because what we did was to exchange personal views our background, where we come from, our fathers and mothers, etc. So it was a sort of extended family gathering, which was not awkward. It, it was typical South African. We talk about family, etc. I had the uh, really wonderful experience to watch with Tabu Mbeki in London, the release of Nelson Mandela. When I look back and think about that particular incident, it was sort of family, an extended family watching Mandela walking out of jail and the prison in the parlor. So it's very difficult to sort of formulate this in exact terms. There was a strong emotion that we are South Africans and we as South Africans must solve the political problem. So for one other reason, which I find somewhat inexplicable, I had this love affair with contacts over the color line and friendships. For instance, Becky and his wife and my wife, they became very good friends. We didn't saw each other as black or white, but as fellow citizens of this country. And that gave me the opportunity for straight talk. For me, as a, on a personal level, the friendship part of my engagement 
was not just dominant, but that was actually the bridging factor. Vili, thank you. That was Vili Estaheza. His book, Endgame, Secret Talks and the End of Apartheid, is available now. You're listening to The Foreign Desk in the Room with me, Andrew Muller. And joining me finally from Washington, D.C. is Greg Myrie, a national security correspondent for NPR who was posted to South Africa in 1987, where he witnessed Nelson Mandela's release from prison. Greg, first of all, how did you come to be where you were on February 11th, 1990? Yeah, Andrew, I was a young reporter with the Associated Press, and they sent me to South Africa in 1987, and I was thrilled to be there to be covering this dramatic story. But when I got there, the white government was very much in control, and the white security forces seemed to not be challenged in any significant way. Um, There was a state of emergency. There had been unrest for the previous couple years. So we were seeing lots of turmoil, but um, there was no sense that apartheid was near an end until a few months before uh, February 11th, 1990. And that's when F.W. de Klerk came to power really the previous August and uh, just started making dramatic changes from day one and gave a big speech on February 2nd to Parliament, the opening of Parliament in Cape Town that year, announcing he would make some very sweeping changes toward ending apartheid, including the release of Nelson Mandela, though he didn't give a specific date. The prohibition of the African National Congress, the Pan-Africanist Congress, the South African Communist Party is being rescinded. People serving prison sentences merely because they were members of one of these organizations will be identified and released. In this connection, the government has taken a firm decision to release Mr. Mandela unconditionally. Was that announcement of de Klerk's the first inkling you had that Mandela was going to be freed? Well, in October of 1989... De Klerk, again, who'd just been in office for a couple months at that point, released several, I believe it was seven of Mandela's prison colleagues, other older members of the African National Congress who'd been in prison 20 plus years. It was sort of this trial run. They got out of prison. The African National Congress was allowed to hold its first legal rally in decades, and it was in this huge soccer stadium in Soweto, the black township just outside Johannesburg with 80 or so thousand people. I actually met my wife that day. But uh, aside from that, this was a trial run. They were going to see what how this worked. You know, was the country going to explode into chaos or could it be managed? So you got that inkling that de Klerk was moving in this direction. And then everybody was awaiting this February 2nd speech in 1990 at the opening of parliament to see how far he would go. He made very clear then with that speech, he was going to go all the way and made clear he was going to try to end apartheid. So at the specific moment when Mandela walks out into the view of the world's cameras and that huge crowd of people as a free man, where were you? 
So I was in Cape Town in front of City Hall. He walked out of a prison outside Cape Town. There was a small group of people there. I was, as I mentioned, with the Associated Press. We had some photographers there, but we knew that was mostly a photo op where Mandela and his wife, Winnie, came out. He raised his fist. And a salute from Mr. Nelson Mandela, his wife, Winnie, greeting the people outside the fences of the Victor Verstappen Prison. And then he was going to come speak on the balcony of Cape Town City Hall. And so remember, this was still formally a white city at this point. And yet this massive black crowd had gathered and it was called the parade grounds, but it's essentially a big parking lot out in front of, of City Hall, just anticipating Mandela's arrival. So this was a Sunday afternoon and I got out, I believe, at like three o'clock and then everybody was waiting and they saw him on TV being released from prison, but he didn't immediately come there because the crowd was so massive. And even as he was driving in, people were banging on his car. He was kind of feared, as he said, I was going to be killed by love. And so it was hours, twilight, in fact, before he actually showed up at Cape Town City Hall. They were so fearful for his security because the African National Congress didn't want the white police handling security, feeling that could lead to fighting with the black. But the ANC didn't have their own security forces. So think of it as sort of this crazy, massive rock concert with minimal security, and you just didn't know how it was going to play out. And that's why they kept him away for several hours. So when he does finally make his appearance to speak in Cape Town, what kind of view did you have? I was in the sea of of humanity there. And again, just sheer electricity that you could feel in the crowd. But you were squeezed in like sardines. You couldn't move right or left. I couldn't get out. This is pre-cell phone. So I'm I'm figuring, how am I going to hear this? How am I going to dash out of this crowd, get to a payphone and call <laughs> my office? That was my thinking. So he appears at sort of twilight on the balcony at City Hall in Cape Town. And he had these kind of funny glasses, these big oversized sort of square lenses. And as it turned out, he'd uh, left his reading glasses at prison. He hadn't brought them with him. So he needed to borrow his wife, Winnie's reading glasses, to read his opening remarks there. And the crowd just exploded. Um, you know, there's no other way to describe it. I salute the African National Congress. It has fulfilled our every expectation in its role as leader of the great march to freedom. Remember, nobody had seen him. The white government thought that they would lessen his reputation, lessen his myth by not showing pictures or not providing his words during his 27 years in prison. And the government, the white government of F.W. de Klerk, released this photo of him the night before. And he's sort of standing there stiffly in a suit, but looking very, very different. He was a young, rugged boxer mm. in his 40s who'd gone to prison. And now he was a 70-year-old man looking very distinguished, very polished. But we still didn't know what kind of physical shape he would be in or what he would sound like until he delivered those remarks. So when you were finally able to get your thoughts together, locate a payphone and try and file some sort of report of what had occurred, what did you end up telling them? What did you make of his opening remarks? Well, 
27 years in prison was sort of like a political finishing school for Nelson Mandela and his colleagues. They had been discussing, debating democracy, economics, global relations for 27 years. These were educated men, teachers and lawyers. And Mandela was very much, I mean, he had been the leader of that group. He was a lawyer. He spoke in very lawyerly terms. He was not the most invigorating speaker. A lot There were a lot of younger black leaders who could rev up a crowd in, in ways that Mandela didn't. But I thought he was the perfect man for this moment because of all the, the moral force he brought to this. But also it was, everything was thoughtful, measured. His cadence was, was very uh, deliberate. He was a lawyer talking about the way to rework a future South Africa. He wasn't trying to rev up a crowd which would respond to almost anything he said. In the weeks and months following his release, especially as the prospect of him becoming president grows ever more inevitable, he is probably the most discussed, almost certainly the most admired individual on the planet, and reasonably so. In your position as a, you know, a young reporter for an organisation like the Associated Press, how accessible was, was he or his organisation? How helpful were they to people trying to cover this story? Oh, very- I would say. In fact, um, you know, he got out on a Sunday evening. He went and stayed with the home that night of Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And so at 9 a.m. on uh, Monday morning, less than 24 hours after Mandela had been released, journalists were called over there where there were probably a few dozen of us. We sat on the grass in this beautiful, shaded, leafy garden at the Archbishop's home. And Nelson Mandela emerged at 9 a.m. in a suit and tie. And in fact, as I talk to you here from my home in Washington, I have a picture above my my desk here at home that I took that day. And it shows a very serene Nelson Mandela in a gray suit and a light blue shirt and a navy blue tie and a white pocket scarf looking like he's been doing this all his life. And he's been in prison fatigues for the past 27 years. And yet he felt very comfortable. And we were able to sit there and and speak to him from a distance of just a few feet. We were sort of sitting in the grass as he was sitting behind a little table. And sort of over time, they kind of leaked out the kinds of discussions he would have, the way he made friendships with his white jailers over the years, the way at certain times uh, as he got near in the final years, as he moved toward his release, they would take him out late at night and drive him around Cape Town so he could sort of see what modern society looked like because he hadn't seen it. He talked about pulling into a gas station in the middle of the night and getting out and these two attendants, black uh, gas station attendants looking at him, sort of scratching their head. (laughs) One can only imagine the kind of conversation they would have had afterwards. Is that Nelson Mandela? It's like, no, man. What would Nelson Mandela be doing at a gas station at two o'clock in the morning? The guy's been in prison for 25 years. And yet it was Nelson Mandela. So that was the thing you always wanted to try to get these amazing personal stories out of them. And they would occasionally leak out, but he, he kind of stuck to his message. Greg Myrie, thank you very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. 
That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer available every Wednesday. And next Saturday is the third and final instalment of this season of The Foreign Desk in the room as we meet some of the people who steered not only the UK's response to Argentina's invasion of the Falklands but one of the ships that was lost recovering the islands. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.